here has made me to understand that every day that I check in that old check in on that old lady, making sure she has taken her medications. It's habits, it's volunteerism. And I think this is exactly what I'll I'll put into the minds of people that you don't need to do anything big, just a little, little service. Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Hayen, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota, and today we are continuing our new podcast series by interviewing some of the amazing people that Global Minnesota connects with as we work together to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. So this past month, an incredible group of emerging professionals from countries all across Africa have been visiting Minnesota as part of the Mandela Washington Fellowship Program. This program is part of the U.S. State Department's Young African Leaders Initiative, and over the years has brought thousands of young leaders from Sub-Saharan Africa to the United States for academic and leadership training. Global Minnesota recently held a public meet and greet event with over two dozen of these individuals from 16 countries. So on today's episode, I'm joined by two of these impressive fellows, Marcelin Tisaboro and Sylvia Fafale Adjitse. Marcelin is from Madagascar and serves as the Chief Officer of Fishery and Aquaculture at the Ministry of Fisheries and Blue Economy. His work focuses on the coordination of fishery and aquaculture-related activity, the resolution of conflicts between organizations, updating legislation, and fishery development projects. Sylvia is visiting from Ghana and is a senior nursing officer at the Tamale Teaching Hospital. She is also the founder of the FANCOD International, which works to prevent non-communicable diseases and support persons living with them. So thank you both for joining today. Thank you for having us. Of course. So Marcella and Sylvia, tell us a bit about where you're from and your professional careers. Hello, everyone. Hi, Nick. Uh, my name is Marceline Silbut. I'm from Madagascar. I'm a fisheries expert. I work for the Ministry of Fisheries. I am the one, I am the intermediary between the fisheries administration and the local fishermen, I mean, the local people. So I try to make sure that all the projects that are uh, invested by the government, I mean, the fisheries project and aquaculture project benefits the local people. I'm working with a lot of stakeholders, uh, including local people. I'm resolving conflicts. I'm doing a project assessment. And I'm also assisting local people to find outlet and to create projects. So yeah, it's a little bit about my professional job. Yes. Yeah, so I, hi, and Nick, thank you for having us on your podcast. Um, Sylvia Pafali Ajite, I'm from Ghana. I'm a registered nurse. I work in a teaching hospital called Tamale Teaching Hospital. But apart from my job as a nurse, I'm also an advocate in the prevention of non-communicable diseases. That's chronic diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, kidney failure, and other chronic diseases. And that's what pushed me to found and find an organization called uh, the FANCOD, which stands for Fight Against Non-Communicable Diseases. And so what we do is to screen, give education, awareness creation on uh, diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, and other chronic diseases to prevent people from getting them. 
And even if you have the disease, we support you to get the right care, to meet the right doctors, to get the right medicines. And then we do a lot of follow-up to make sure you're complying on treatment so that you do not get complications. Yeah. Great. So yeah, both of you engaged in very important and, and exciting work that um, it was really benefiting the lives of people just on the ground, average people in your home countries. So that's really excellent to hear. So how did you hear about the Mandela Washington Fellowship? And what did you first think when you heard that you were coming to America? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, it's a very long story especially for myself. In 2016, I was passing in front of the US embassy uh, during the evening. Evening in Madagascar is already dark. So there, were, there was the lights on the US building. It's very light. And the architecture is very developed. So it was for me, it was the very beautiful building in the place. So I was asking, which place is this? And people answered me that they, this is the US embassy. So I said to myself that one day, I want to come in, into this place. I want to visit this place. That was my starting, that was my beginning. And in 2017, I was with a friend who came to the US and I, he explained to me that I was in the US and I was interested what did you do in the US? And he explained me that he was a Mandela Washington fellow. And I was excited to listen to his story. I asked him what was the criteria to be a Washington Mandela? What is the process? And what should I do if I want to become a Washington Mandela? So he told me, especially with the English, because Madagascar is a French-speaking country. He told me that I have to work hard with my English to be part of the Mandela Washington. So I prepared myself and this year I applied. I was selected for, from 700 applicants. The day I heard that, because they called me, the US embassy, the local US embassy called us that you have been selected from the Mandela Washington. I just screamed out, I just danced. <laughs> Even my family, they were dancing with me like it's a dream to be in the US. And for me, not even the US, but even to be in the US embassy, it was my dream from 2016. So it's become true now. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so for me, uh, I met someone, a past fellow, we went to write a common exams together. And then we were just talking and exchanging contacts. And then she mentioned to me about the Mandela Washington Fellowship. That was in 2016. And then I went to look it up on the internet and I saw a lot of amazing things. I went on Facebook and Twitter and I saw amazing things that people were doing. I mean, what the fellowship brought to some people and that got me excited. But at a point I wasn't sure if I was going to be picked. So I didn't really give it a second thought. And then in 2021, a friend of mine, very good friend who got into the fellowship called me to say that, look, I am going for the fellowship and it is time for you to start putting everything you need together. Because when I come back, you are sending in your applications because I know you're going to get this. And then he kept pushing and pushing. And then I sent in my applications and then I was selected. So the very day I got the notification that I was selected, I was at work. I had a very busy day in the hospital. And then when I closed and 
got into the car and I opened my phone to check my email. And then it was the first notification I got that I was selected. I was mute for, you know, more than 15 minutes. I didn't know whether to scream, to, I don't know what to do about it. I just sat there quietly just to calm my emotions, excitement before I moved my car. And then when I got home, I gave my phone to my kids. Can you read this email back to me? Let me hear what it actually says. God, I thought it was a dream, you know? And then they said, no, it's real. You've been selected for this. So my excitement was not just coming to the US, but the fact that this fellowship has great potentials for developing my profession and career, even in the long term, the kind of people I'm going to meet with, the connections, the long-term collaborations that could exist from this fellowship. That was the thing that excited me the most. And the second thing to come to the US. Who wouldn't want to come to the US, you know? So yeah, it, it was such an exciting moment the very time I got the email. That's really great. And I love how, yeah, I, I think it's interesting how both of you kind of uh, were exposed to this program by other people who had been in it, you know, the sort of word of mouth that it spreads from one person to another and you just that's what uh, creates that spark that gets you both to to want to apply. Um, Marcel, and I think it's it's very interesting that uh, the architecture of the building itself was such a draw <laughs> to bring you just to the embassy alone. Um, I, I hope that the buildings in Minnesota live up to that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen at least a couple. Hopefully they're at least as exciting as the embassy. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I when the first time I came here, I see all the beautiful building and I say that this is not real. This is like a dream. <laughs> because it's really very different from where I come from. It's really different and it's nice. And it gives you inspiration to work hard and to change things because in Africa, we also need this kind of beautiful things, beautiful building, and people, all the people deserve this, such good things. Absolutely. And you're clearly working hard to, to yes. get it. I mean, your your English is, um, you know, as you said, only a few years old, but it's, it's pretty good to me. <laughs> Thank you so much. So can you tell us a little bit more about your work then with, with fisheries and aquaculture, you know, in Madagascar? Um, I guess, what drew you to this work initially and what have you learned that you're going to take back to Madagascar? Yes, uh, I coordinating, yeah, to be specific, I coordinating fisheries and aquaculture projects. I work like an intermediate between the states and the local people. We have in Madagascar like a, a little bit an issue, a problem, let's say problem, because before the sea belongs to the fishermen. But after, like uh, five years ago, the government decided to give the sea to the private company. And the private company are supposed to work with the local fishermen. So the private company, they are doing aquaculture in the sea. And there is, there are the fishing, uh, the fishermen, the local fishermen. Now we have a sort of conflict between the private, I mean, the private that doing aquaculture and the local fishermen that own the place former uh, before. And from this uh, training, I realized that it is a good perspective to advocate the right of the local fishermen to benefit from all these activities for all these projects 
and also to advocate them to be part of all decision-making process in Madagascar. So this is things that I have learned here to more listen to people, to, more, to, 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 to tell them the right and also to, to listen to their voice. Yeah, I imagine it gets more difficult when the private sector moves in and makes it harder for, you know, the smaller average fishermen to um to, to get their work done. And it's it's really difficult because when the privates installed to the place, when they the first time that they came to the place, they promote to the local people that the local people will benefit from this project. But now it's not the same situation because the local people complain, but there is, I think the, local, the government are still struggling to manage how to manage this complaint. Yeah, and I suppose with the corporations looking more towards profit rather than uh, you know, sustainable fishery development, that's also an issue as well. Sure, sure. So did you meet anyone on your uh, travels to Minnesota that uh, can help you with this? I meet the the uh, official at the Natural Resources Department, the fisheries officer, and I explain them the situation. And I also ask them how they deal with the complaints. So they explain to me their uh, management system. And I think I will uh, be in touch with them to do the same project in Madagascar, to create uh, a complaint management system that can uh, receive complaint from the local people in order to improve our fisheries management, our fisheries governance, and also to update our legislation because our legislation are so old and uh, there is no place to listen to voice of the local people. So I will do that. I learned that from them. And I also meet, meet a coach because in the program we have a special coach that uh, give you orientation and assisting you to create your project and also to make your changes. So my my coach really helped me to do all of these things. That's fantastic. We'll have to follow up and uh, hear your story later on about uh, how successful you've been at that. Yes, yes, thank you. So Sylvia, same question about your work then on nursing and non-communicable diseases. You know, what drew you to this and what have you learned that you're going to take back to Ghana? So I have been a nurse for the past 13 years, but my interest in NCD started about uh, four or five years ago. I, there was a young girl very close to me that was diagnosed of hypertension at the age of 21 and then was put on medication that I, I didn't know about. And then two years down the line, she had complications, bled into her brain, and died suddenly. She couldn't even get to the hospital and then died suddenly. And that hit me so hard. After the autopsy was done, it was found out that she bled into the brain. And those were complications from the long-standing hypertension that was not you know, well managed. And that's when it started for me. And I started asking, what can I do to prevent needless deaths like the one that happened to this young girl? And then from my work, I was moved to a unit that takes care of people with this kind of diseases. And I came into contact with another patient that had hypertension diabetes years ago, was put on medication. He couldn't keep up with his treatment because he couldn't afford to buy his medications and to comply on the treatment. 
and then he got complications that resulted into his kidneys failing. He couldn't afford a new kidney and couldn't even afford to be on maintenance dialysis. And this young man died. And then a few months later, his sister that was always with him each time he came into the hospital was also admitted with kidney failure. And then there we found out that it was also complication from diabetes that was not diagnosed early and was not managed well. And that is when the passion started in me that we need to stop people from dying from needless there because these are preventable. People should not even get to complications such as this, even if they have hypertension or diabetes. And that's when it started for me to create awareness, give education on radio, talk to anybody that I meet, patients, relatives, or visitors that came to see their patient. My interest was, have you checked your blood pressure? When last did you check your blood sugar? Do you know what your blood sugar levels are? Do you know what your blood pressure figures are? And that's when it started for me in the hospital. Then gradually, I moved into going into the community to organize screening, to do education, and the ones that have the disease already in the communities. Because where I work, it's a rural urban place. So we have a lot of rural people. It's a city, but we still have some parts of the city that are mostly rural dwellers. And then when people live in the rural area, it becomes difficult for them to come into the hospital. They are not familiar with the city, busy and all that. So they get scared of even coming. So what I do is to navigate, okay, I have this person that can easily facilitate your coming to the hospital. You need to see a doctor. I know this person that can facilitate to get you to see a doctor on time. Then you can go back to your community without any stress. Then I'm able to link people up to the community health workers where they can get follow up to make sure that they are taking their medications and they don't get into complications. And this has been my journey. Uh, my time in Minnesota has been great. I have had opportunity, like my other colleagues, to learn things about to understand the you know the disparities in health in the US. And I think that's the same thing that is happening in my country as well. That people in Rural places, the vulnerable, they are poor, they are disproportionately affected by this disease. Some are suffering this disease because of poverty. And because of poverty, they are not able to manage or control these diseases. And it further worsens it. And then it becomes a vicious cycle, poverty, diseases, chronic diseases, and all that. And that's what I've been looking at. So getting to learn about, you know, the disparities in the US, then that helps me to make a better case, to advocate better for my people back home, what measures can be put in place so that the vulnerable people are not affected more by these diseases or they don't get more impoverished because of these diseases. I have also been privileged to understand how things work here regarding project, I mean, community engagement, community service, all that. I would infuse that into all that I already do to do a proper community engagement, especially with the rural people that I focus on, that's so that we can help to get best service and best healthcare for people to prevent them from getting into such complications or diseases. Yeah. And then uh, before I forget, let me add that, like, like Marceline mentioned, that he has his own personal coach. We all have our personal coaches, and I'm so excited that. I got a coach that, you know, seemed to understand what is in my mind, what I want to do when I go back home. I'm planning to focus on preventing 
obesity in children in the schools, to teach children to eat healthy, because most of these diseases are lifestyle diseases, what we eat, dietary modification and all that. And my coach is working very well with me along that line, so that when I go back home, immediately we can start our projects on school health, helping school kids to choose the right meals, the right food, healthy foods to, you know, to protect them. And then I've met somebody here also who is actually from my country, Ghana, who is also happy about my project and is looking forward to partner with me when I get back home and see what we can do to help people to make right choices regarding what they eat. Yeah, I think that's such a great point that you bring up about these disparities that you're talking about, they're very similar and in many cases exactly the same that we're dealing with here in the United States. You know, issues with rural medicine versus urban medicine, poverty being a huge barrier to to access to medicine. Um, I actually, my family actually has a, a very uh, personal story that kind of relates to this. My mother had uh, renal failure for, for you know, the last probably 30 years of her life. Um, she was fortunate, had dialysis and uh, received a kidney transplant and it, it all went fine. But um, the, the cost of that was, um, was very extreme. Fortunately, in the United States, there was a law passed uh, quite a while ago about, um, which basically gives free uh, medical coverage for end-stage renal. And it's one of the mm -hmm. only things that is covered with that. So without that, we would have been, um, you know, a million dollars in debt, uh, even with insurance that we did have at the time. So that type of barrier is is really severe and extreme. And like you're saying, it's it's one of those things that um, you know you could learn from us, but we could also learn from you about how to how we can do this better. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing to hear that because back home people pay for dialysis out of pockets, and and most people are not able to continue on dialysis for even a year. I have a lot of patients that died before I came. Within a year of being diagnosed of kidney failure, that's, I mean, went into end stage, they couldn't keep up with dialysis. And within a year or less of dialysis, they passed on because they couldn't do, you know, the scheduled time of having your dialysis done. And as for kidney transplants, no, no. Um, I mean, people cannot afford that, yeah. And even if they are able to, raise the resources money for a kidney transplant, the challenge becomes who donates a kidney. A lot of people are scared to donate an organ for another person. So those those are the challenges. Yeah. Because as you're saying, you know, if if we don't treat these things early and appropriately, then they just get worse and worse and health outcomes just they they don't materialize yeah. the way that they should. And and it, it's it's more scary because now most of the deaths are from non-communicable diseases. And all these deaths, 86% of those deaths actually occur in low and middle income countries, countries that are already struggling with, you know, very bad health infrastructure, health resources, countries that don't have universal health coverage, you know. So it's getting worse, but I'm, I'm hoping that my country will sign in, hasten the processes towards we achieving universal health coverage to prevent needless deaths in people. Yeah. Yeah, that would be excellent. And hopefully your experience in Minnesota has uh, 
you know, allowed you some of these tools that you can help bring that about. Um, you did mention some of the professional connections as well, but you know, overall, how has this Minnesota experience been for you, both from a professional and from a personal side? Um, it has been amazing. Let me start from the personal point. Um, I mean, when I was coming to the U.S., I imagined the U.S. to be a very busy and bustling place, and that scares me. <laughs> but when I got into Minnesota, the combination of rural, city, you know, lifestyle made it so easy for me to have a good experience in Minnesota, uh, except for the weather. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, well, it's, just it's, be happy you're not here in the winter. <laughs> I mean, I know it's hot and not fun, but the winter is far worse. Um, 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 I mean, this is summer and I still feel cold this much sometimes. So <laughs> I'm happy I came in summer and not and not in winter. So it has been an amazing experience. The people in Minnesota are very warm. They are kind and warm people. So it's been good. And professionally, I have met a lot of people that have shown interest and are looking forward for us to keep the communication going and see what we can do together in the future. Yeah, for me, same experiences as Sylvia said. Before coming in the US, I have in my head like the US is, this is a dream. This is the perfection. But uh, when I was here, I want to be honest, I saw lots, lot of things that's give me uh, another uh, another opinion about the US because before coming here, it was like, this is the perfection country. <laughs> I see someone smoking on the rail train. I see drug addiction. I see people who are uh, begging. Yeah, and it's let me realize that even in the US, you, you have problem. The problem is everywhere, not only in Africa, but maybe the color is different. I also meet some very kind people in the US, people with big hearts who like sharing experiences, who like helping people. And uh, the city is beautiful. It's clean. It's very clean. This is something that I will always remember in the US, the cleaning system, the trash system, the recycling system. Everywhere you go in the US, it's always clean. And you feel secure when you go out because you have the police people who always work around, even at night. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, I think for my first time in the US, Minnesota, I, I think is the right place that I have come. So that then next time I'm probably coming to the US, it makes it easier for me to integrate. So it's been amazing. And I share the same experience with Maslane, yeah. And then to engage with people to hear about the challenges pertaining to the health system here, that if you don't have money, you don't get healthcare. That's, that breaks my heart, knowing what is in my home country that you need to have money to get quality healthcare. It's, it's sad. For us, it's like a dream. So we have been spending like five five weeks dream, and now we have to wake up because we have to go back in the real life because it's different. We have been trained to be more resilient, to be more flexible, and to be open-minded regarding to the problem in Africa. And I think we are so excited to bring these changes in Africa. We have we have to wake up from this dream. For us, it's 
being in the US, even now, it's like a dream. That saying to ourselves that this is not real. This is not the real situation. We have to wake up when come back in Africa. Yeah. And yet, as you both mentioned, you know, we, we don't have it all figured out here. We, we in the United States are also uh, wrestling with our own issues and, and we don't have it all figured out, but, but we're all trying to improve. We're all trying to do better. And, and hopefully we have the tools through these shared connections that maybe we can make that possible. Um, but that actually kind of leads into my next question. What are you both most looking forward to when you return home? I will start with this question because I have already a plan when I'm back home. As I said, I will create uh, a system that can complain, uh, that can co collect the complaint for, from all the stakeholders that are working with me, especially the local people. And uh, I will use this complaint to make some recommendation to the fisheries ministry to update our regulation and also to improve our system. I mean, the management system, the governance system, and also to listen to people. I have learned so many things from the US, especially the community services. So back home, I will engage all the local people, all the local fishermen to do some voluntary activities, uh, uh, community services, even to clean the roads, because I learned from, it's very clean here. And it's inspired me to do lots of things when coming back home, helping people, sharing, people and doing like some neighborhood activities. This, these are the first thing that I will, I will do. The first thing that I will, I will do back home. Yep, for me, I think the first thing is my family. <laughs> I've missed yeah. my family. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to meeting my family to share the good experience that I have had here with them. That's on a personal note. But the other things that I'm going to, I mean, tackle professionally or pertaining to my leadership is there are a lot of young people who are looking forward to have the American dream, who want to come to the U.S. and all that. And looking at the homeless situation and the what undocumented people go through here, I think that I would like to put into the minds of people that if you don't have anything to do here, that will get you a good job, a good income think of doing something back home and not come here because if you don't have a good job here you can't get you know proper life here you might not realize your American dream so they need to really get focused and know what they want to do before they get into the U.S. The other thing is advocacy I think I have been prepared my leadership skills have been honed and I think I'll do more advocacy for people living with NCDs, and then more work on towards the prevention of non-communicable diseases, especially among the vulnerable and rural people that are my, I mean, interest, and they are people that I'm passionate about. Um, I started my organization, FANCOD, which stands for Fight Against Non-Communicable Diseases. Uh, it is one of the major projects I want to work on to make sure it is fully functional because the structures were not well placed before I came here. And so I think I need to make sure that it is fully functional. That way we can get collab more collaborators to partner with us. Then we can work more towards dealing with non-communicable diseases. Then the other, the final thing is volunteerism. 
my my understanding of volunteerism back home is totally different from what what I have seen here. It doesn't take much to do community service. You don't need to get thousands of people, hundreds of people to do volunteerism. As an individual, you can even knock at another person's door that you think needs help to do something. An old person who lives by you that needs help to clean around the house or the compound. This is something that some one person can just walk in to do. You don't need to get a lot of people organized together before you can do community service or volunteerism. And if it's one of the things that I want to put into the minds of Ghanaians, that let's learn to serve ourselves and take care of ourselves before we get other people coming in to help us. Because I believe that when we learn to show that we care about ourselves and serve ourselves, people out there will see that this is the need or challenge we have, and then they can support us appropriately. I think exactly. It's We get so caught up in, in thinking that we need to do something big and, and grand, and that's going to change the world. But it's those small little acts of kindness, those checking in on your neighbors and and doing these smaller things, you know, that really snowball and build into something great. And let, let me add this. I have a, a neighbor who is old and sick that I check in every morning and evening before I go to work. I check in on her and then make sure she has taken her medications. Then when I close from work, I go to check in on her. I had no idea I was doing community service volunteerism. I, I mean, I thought I was just helping a neighbor who doesn't have anyone to take care of her. And I just check in morning and evening. I went somewhere and then I was asked about, before I came to the US in the last two months, what community service or volunteerism have you done? And I started scratching my head. I said, no, in the past two months, I've been busy. I've not gotten to engage in any volunteerism or community service. But coming here has made me to understand that every day that I check in that old lady, checking on that old lady, making sure she has taken her medications and making sure she has eaten something, it's habits, it's volunteerism. And I think this is exactly what I'll, I'll put into the minds of people that you don't need to do anything big. There's a little, little service that you render to people counts a lot. Because I, if everybody in the neighborhood checks in on another person, another person does one person, that is even bigger than we all waiting to come together in numbers of tens and hundreds to go out to take care of people just in a day or two. So lastly, what is something you wish everyone knew about Ghana? <laughs> Ghana is a very beautiful place. Good weather. Not cold. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a lot of variety of food, good food. And if you like spicy food, come to Ghana. We have nice food. We have nice culture, nice weather, a lot of tourist places that one can visit. And then we have beautiful clothing, fabrics. You know, since I came, anytime I wear anything from Ghana and I walk on the street, oh, this dress is beautiful. It's so colorful. The patterns are nice. We have a lot of beautiful variety and things like that in Ghana. So if you are thinking of your next vacation destination, you should come to Ghana and visit. Very beautiful people, warm and very hospitable people. And for those who want to do business, I am not into business, but I know there's a lot of business opportunities. Our, our economy is doing well. We are developing and moving. It's a very peaceful place for business. People can come in 
And then if anyone is thinking about, you know, developmental work, take care of communities, support communities in terms of education, in terms of health, Ghana is a very good place to do that. We, I mean, I always talk for the people that I'm interested in, the rural people. There are some schools in Ghana that do not have classrooms. And when it is raining, it becomes a holiday for such schools. There are some places in Ghana that don't have access to healthcare. People would have to travel kilo, long kilometers to get access to healthcare. And so if somebody is interested in doing anything in Africa, come to Ghana, support rural health, support rural education, water and sanitation. Yes, so this is what I want to send out to people of Minnesota. Marcelin, how about uh, Madagascar? Ah, Madagascar is a very nice country. <laughs> Madagascar is a French uh, colony country. So you speak French in Madagascar. Madagascar is an island. It's a beautiful uh, country, beautiful island. So one day if you think about have a holiday, see a beautiful place, people in Madagascar, we are friendly, we are hospitable, and we are used to receive people, to host people. So please welcome in Madagascar. And the food also is very nice. The weather is very nice. And people, we are very, very friendly. So one day, if you want to visit, we don't have a problem with tribalism. We don't have a problem with terrorism. We are very open and very friendly people. So think about going to Madagascar with your next holidays. <laughs> Steve, Harvey has a home in Ghana. So if you are wondering if I should come to Ghana, and then uh, Steve Wanda also came to Ghana. He has a home in Ghana. He calls Ghana his home. And a lot of people in the US here call Ghana their home. So come join them. Let's make Ghana like America that we all want to be. Yeah. And I forget. And Nick, come to Ghana, your next holidays. <laughs> I forget the U.S. Embassy in Madagascar. It's beautiful. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go to Madagascar, and I'm going to see that embassy from myself. Uh, <laughs> I will go to Ghana too. Uh, it sounds You're great. You're welcome. I, yeah. I, I can handle a little bit of spicy food. Um, although mm -hmm. I know many Minnesotans find uh, mayonnaise spicy, I know my daughter does. So um, I think I can handle it though. Please come. <laughs> Great. Well, again, thank you both so much for joining today and for for visiting Minnesota. I just I hope you had a, a great time and that you can take a lot of this this really great connections and information back to improve your home countries. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. Thank you, and thank you to all the people of Minnesota that have been so nice to us. Any place that we went, they were so welcoming and nice. We appreciate the love. Yeah, we are so grateful for everything especially from this program, from the American people, from the American state, and for, from all the people that we meet here in the So thank you so much. And that's all the time we have today. You can learn all about our various international programs by visiting globalminnesota.org. Thanks as always to all the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. Be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find information about upcoming events, learn more about our international programs, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you can hear untold stories of international connections each month and catch recordings of our public events. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.